We said as we started 1 Corinthians that we were going to run into some difficult topics. All week long, this may not make sense to some of you, but at least to those with you small children, uh, I've been humming in my head, uh, we don't talk about Bruno. Anybody know that song uh, from Encanto? We don't talk about Bruno, no, no. All week long, it's been going through my head going, we don't talk about COVID, no, no. In many ways, over the course of the last couple years, to keep the peace in churches, we've adopted what I might call a don't ask, don't tell policy. I don't ask you what you think, you don't ask me what I think, and nobody really shares what we think with each other. This morning, we're going to talk about COVID. From 1 Corinthians chapter 8, dealing with freedoms in Christ. But as we dive into this, I want you to consider some questions. I want us to all consider some questions together. Over the course of the last two years, did you at any point feel anxious or fearful based upon what you were consistently hearing about the threat of COVID-19 and how it posed that threat to you or your family? As a result, did you find yourself mocking, berating, belittling, or gossiping about other believers because they didn't think masks worked or refused to get a vaccine? Did you find yourself looking down on other believers or churches because they continued gathering rather than isolating or quarantining? And did you ever catch yourself saying, I can't possibly worship together with people like that? If so, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is for you. Let's flip the coin. Did you feel consistently anxious or fearful based upon what you were hearing about government control in response to COVID-19? Did you find yourself mocking, berating, belittling, or gossiping about other believers because they thought it was more loving to wear a mask or get a vaccine? Did you find yourself looking down on other believers or churches because they chose not to meet for a time? And did you catch yourself saying, I can't possibly worship together with people that believe that? If so, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is for you. To all of us, did you consistently feel pressured to act or talk differently based upon who you were with? 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 speaks to that. Did you question the salvation or holiness of others because they didn't respond the way you did? 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 speaks to that. And lastly, were you so convinced that you were right, that you justified all these thoughts, attitudes, and feelings from Scripture without considering how best to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 speaks to that. In our text this morning, Paul will say, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Ask yourself, did I at any point in the last two years sacrifice love for my brothers and sisters in Christ for my knowledge, for being right? And am I in any way still doing that? I would encourage you to consider your attitudes and actions as we read through our text together this morning. 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, 
as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, whom, or through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Lord, we come upon another personal text this morning. One that's been a challenge within the church, one that's been a challenge for many of us personally. Lord, I pray that you would be present in our time together this morning, that you would speak through me, that you would give me clarity of thought and word, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to be soft soil to hear what your word has to say to us this morning. Lord, use this time, use your word, use this message in our lives to grow us in our knowledge and love for you and to grow us in our knowledge and love of each other. In Christ's name, amen. Well, like I said, if you were with us in August when we started 1 Corinthians, you know that I warned you this book would get personal. I asked you to commit that Sunday to conforming your thoughts and your attitudes to whatever God had to say through it. In section one, chapters one through four, Paul confronted the divisions over leadership and our unhealthy affinity for idolizing human leaders. In section 2, chapters 5 through 7 that we just wrapped up, Paul confronted disagreements over morality. He addressed questions surrounding immorality, lawsuits, marriage, and singleness. So far, we've had to submit our church, our leaders, our idols, our bank accounts, our marriages, our sexuality, and our singleness to God's will. And yet this section may prove the most difficult for us. In section 3, chapters 8 through 10, Paul touches on the Corinthian church's disputes over their rights and freedoms. Now we face the challenge of submitting our rights, our freedoms, our preferences, our knowledge, our wills, and even our autonomy to Christ. Let me warn you briefly before we dive into this text. Don't write me off this morning because you become convinced I'm one of those people. I assure you I've done everything I can possibly do in preparing this message so that you won't know what I actually think about COVID. Because I am far more concerned with how we think about COVID and how we think about each other than with what your personal opinion is on it. Paul starts off firmly by saying we need to first recognize the danger of loveless knowledge. Verses 1 through 3, recognize the danger of loveless knowledge. Then he says we need to remember the source 
of love and knowledge. Where did this come from? What is the primary source of our love and our knowledge? And lastly, resolve to practice loving knowledge. Recognize, remember, and resolve. First, he points to the danger of loveless knowledge. Look at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Again, this is something that should be familiar to us. When he says now concerning, he's bringing up a new topic. This is the third question that he's addressing that the Corinthian church had written to him about, asking what should we do? The question is related to food offered to idols. Food offered to idols, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us today. What are we talking about here? Well, this is the way things would have worked in Corinth of the day. Okay? Most of the meat, when an animal was sacrificed, would have been offered to some sort of a local deity or god. They would have offered the sacrifice up and committed it to some god of the day. And then what happened in that meeting is sometimes it would be offered up in a public gathering, such as at the temple or such as at a corporate event or the guilds or something like that. Sometimes it would happen in a private home where they would offer it up to a particular god. And sometimes it would be that the meat would then make its way into the market where people would buy and sell it. The fact of the matter is nearly all the meat in Corinth probably at one time would have been offered up to a god. Because the thinking of the day was that if they offered it to a good god, it would prevent a bad god from somehow infusing their way into their lives. They believed there were little devils kind of running around everywhere, and those devils, those evil spirits, would settle on the meat or settle on the food, and then by ingesting that food, you would be influenced by those negative spirits. So as a result, they were concerned about this practice. Now, why would this bother anyone? Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, flip there real quickly, verses 9 and 10, when Paul was responding to their question related to sexual immorality, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, whatever letter he wrote before 1 Corinthians, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkler, swindler. So it's very clear that one of the things that the Corinthian church was confusing is they were thinking that when there was any sort of possibility of getting tainted by association with unbelievers, they were supposed to stay away from that. Paul has refuted that when it comes to sexual immorality. He's saying you need to address the sexual immorality in the church rather than judging everybody outside the church. We touched on that when we got there. So when it came to this question, basically, the argument devolved into two sides. One side might be called the free brother or sister. And their take on this situation was, idols aren't really real anyway, so I can do whatever I want. I can participate in these public gatherings in the courtyards and in the temples because there's no real idols being celebrated anyway. I can participate in a meal in someone's home because that idol, that God, isn't real. And I can purchase that meat in the market because it's not a real problem. Idols aren't real anyway. The second side would have said something more to the effect of, eating tainted meat anywhere is a participation in idolatry. Because that meat has been offered up to an idol, therefore, to eat that is a participation in idolatry. Over the course of the next few chapters, Paul is going to speak to how, in some level, they're both on to something appropriate. Though idols aren't real, he's going to admit that's true, idolatry itself is a real danger. He's going to talk about that when we get to chapter 10. But he makes an interesting distinction here in verse 1. Look back at verse 1. He says this, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul makes an important distinction here between love and knowledge, or the type of knowledge that they were espousing. He says, this type of knowledge, and your Bible probably has quotations around all of us possess knowledge, likely Paul is referring to something that they had written in their, their letter, some motto or creed that this group of free believers had started to quote. He said, that type of knowledge creates an ego and it puffs you up. It makes you sure of your own position. It makes you look down on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, love builds up. Exercising love for the good of other people builds them up in Christ, helps conform them to the image of Christ. He says the type of knowledge you're espousing here is a deceptive type of knowledge. He says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He says, your prideful, arrogant knowledge is actually displaying your ignorance. Your certainty, you've got it all figured out, is actually a display of your own ignorance. We've all known people like this in the church, haven't we? The loveless theological giant who could easily teach a Sunday school class, who could easily stand up here and preach on a Sunday morning, but when they get all done, you're like, do they even really care about me? It's a real danger in the church. Instead, Paul reminds them of what I might call dynamic love. But if anyone loves God, and we would expect him to say, he knows God. Instead, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul grounds the sort of love and knowledge that builds others up in first God's relationship and choice of us. In who God is. He says, real knowledge starts with a love for God and a relationship with him. We love because he first loved us. In Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What does Jesus respond with? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, love for one another starts with a relationship with God. Here, I believe, is Paul's point. Knowledge without love is deceptive. It breeds arrogance, divisions, and self-centeredness. Knowledge without love is deceptive. Paul illustrates his own point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Flip to the right in your Bibles. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Excuse me, not 3, 13. Verses 1 through 3, Paul displays this with a better illustration than I could possibly come up with. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I thought about bringing one of those up onto stage, decided probably not. It would be crazy for the poor tech guys. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul illustrates the deceptive nature of love or knowledge without love as a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Have we been guilty of being noisy gongs and clanging cymbals? And the one thing that is certain about noisy gongs and clanging cymbals is people just cover their ears. They stop listening. 
because the sound is so offensive. We must be careful of knowledge without love. For the individual believer, this means caring more about the person you're talking to than about the position they've taken on a particular issue. It doesn't mean jettisoning theology, that's not what I'm advocating, but it means we care more about the person than just demolishing their position. It means we have to distinguish orthodox doctrine from simple personal conviction. Hopefully I'll get the chance to go through the idea of theological triage in one of the later chapters, the idea of distinguishing what is the heart of the gospel and what are church practices and what are simply my personal convictions from Scripture. We must distinguish orthodoxy from my own personal opinions. Because as a church, we are perfectly capable of undermining clear gospel doctrine with a loveless church community. We can profess redemption through Christ and a clear gospel and then undermine it when someone walks into our church and sees loveless behavior. We must recognize the danger of loveless knowledge and seek to avoid it at all costs. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. From there, Paul speaks to the heart of the matter. He moves back and he talks about a reality that has to be said here in verses 4 through 6. He says, remember the source of love and knowledge. He lists off two inescapable truths that we all need to realize. Verse 4 and 5 first Idols don't exist. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, first of all, he says idols do not exist. He speaks to two types of idols that would have been familiar in the Corinthian church. First, these non-existent gods, these idols, these statues made of wood or stone or whatever the case might be, that they would have had all over the city of Corinth. He says these are non-existent gods. They're not real, and we know that. As something interesting to follow up, I love the way Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 20. I would encourage you to take some time and read that this afternoon. Isaiah speaks to how ridiculous it is to go down and chop down a tree and then turn half of the tree into an idol, which you worship, and take the other half of the tree and cook your food on it. He says, it's ridiculous. How could you do this? And Paul is in agreement here. He says, they are not real gods. These idols don't mean anything. He also speaks to these false gods, these human little g gods, little l lords. The Greek world was fascinated with lore and mythology. They would have worshipped hundreds of gods, and they even would have worshipped like the Roman emperor as a god. He says, these are as well false gods. These little g-lords, these little g-gods don't really mean anything. And we laugh at the Corinthians, don't we? How foolish to worship a tree, to worship a piece of metal, to worship a person. But tell me we're not just like them. Tell me we're not just like them. We can make gods out of all sorts of things in our lives, don't we? We make gods out of our possessions and our jobs, it's amazing the worship some people devote to their car, is it not? Or their house. Or their hobbies. Or their job. We make gods out of other people. 
when we allow our friends to influence what we do more than God's word, when we allow a relationship or a boss or a coworker or a fellow student to influence what we do more than the word of God. We set that person up as an idol and say, I'm going to avoid God, I'm going to worship you. And we even make gods out of our own preferences, our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own attitudes, as if somehow that is the definition of truth. I love the way Al Mohler puts this. He says, at this moment, preference has trumped ontology. Autonomy has trumped truth. We make gods out of our own preferences and opinions. We make a God out of our own autonomy as a person, don't we? Idols promise much, but Paul says they aren't real and they cannot deliver on the promises that they make. Instead, he points to who God is. Look at verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It says, in contrast to these ridiculous idols and these people that you set up as idols, there is one God, God the Father, who created everything, who was preexistent before everything, from whom are all things. Everything that exists was created by God and for whom we exist. Our lives exist for the glory of the Father. Every action and activity we engage in is for the glory of the Father. When we pit our own autonomy against God's glory and set our autonomy up as king, what does that say to who we're really worshiping? He goes on and speaks to God the Son as well and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And you'll notice the symmetry here in what he says, through whom are all things and through whom or for whom, through whom we exist, right? God the Son, also equally God, right? This is Trinitarian, and don't get too worried that we don't see the Spirit listed off here. The Spirit is prevalent through the book of 1 Corinthians. The Spirit's role and the Spirit's power and the Spirit's deity is very plain through the rest of Corinthians, but here he highlights the Son as well, and how through Him all things were created, and through Him we exist, this is explained more in Colossians. I would encourage you to turn right in your Bibles. I love Paul's descriptions. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. I just love this passage when we're talking about the person and work of Christ. Read with me. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him are all things held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? He highlights the role of God the Son and his preeminence here, and he says, you want to know what a real God looks like? Let me hold up God the Father and God the Son for you. We as Christians are not deists. We do not believe that God just set the world in motion, set it spinning, and then stepped away and said, I don't care what happens. 
We believe that God created and is thoroughly involved in every aspect of his creation today. But do we really believe that? Do we really act as if God is involved in his creation, in every detail of his creation still today? In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks to the heart of the matter, and he says, All of creation exists by the Father's will. It exists through Christ's reign, and it exists for God's glory. And he says this to the Corinthian church because he says, You are majoring on the minors. You are majoring on the minors. You are not focusing on what is most important. You are losing the forest through the trees. He's saying it's not that this doesn't matter. He's going to speak to how we should approach it. But he says there's something more important going on here. God's glory is at stake in this situation, and you need to remember where both your knowledge and your love really come from. If you're sitting here this morning, and you haven't personally placed your faith in Christ, you need to know that your life has purpose. You need to know that time and creation is going somewhere. The world is not simply a spinning accident that some point will crash and burn. Your life is not merely an accidental happenstance of fate that really doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. What this means when we recognize who God is and who the Son is, we come to realize that our lives have purpose and time is going somewhere. Each and every one of us was created for God's glory. God intentionally stepped in, created time and history, and made people in his image to glorify him. But when Adam and Eve fell and they rebelled against God and they said, we don't care about that, we don't care about your purposes, every one of us fell with them. We rebel against God both because we're sons of Adam and we rebel against God by our own sin. But Paul holds up Christ as the answer to that. He says that redemption and purpose in life is available through the person and work of Christ. And by placing your faith and your trust in him, your life can have purpose. Because God is not just an automaton or not just an absent-minded father who sent things into role or into position and then stepped away because he didn't care what was going on. God cares about the details of your life. He cares about the purpose of your life. And he's sending time in a particular direction for a particular reason. And we in the church need to be reminded of these realities as well. All of human activity exists because God actively sustains it and Christ reigns over it. All of human activity exists by God's will and for Christ's glory. Yes, even as an election cycle comes to an end. Christ is on his throne, and Christ is glorifying himself through what is taking place today in our backyard and in our country and in this world. God will glorify himself through it all. He will. He is the heart of the matter. He is the purpose for history. He is the direction that all of time is headed. So we must remember that God is the source and the purpose of our love and our knowledge. 
If we lose sight of how our love and our knowledge connects to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we will start doing whatever we want with it. So finally, Paul moves into practically what this means, and he encourages us to resolve to practice loving knowledge. Look at verse 7. He first describes what we would call the weak brother. However, I acknowledge that idols aren't real. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Important to note here that Paul describes these weaker brothers, these weaker sisters, in three ways. First of all, he speaks to their ignorance. Everyone in the Corinthian church was relatively new believers, but some weren't aware. Not all possess this knowledge. Some don't know that idols aren't real. That's a practical reality. There's an ignorance involved in this idea. Or he speaks to their past as well, right? He says, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. The weaker brother doesn't know this truth, Or they have this experience in the past that is causing an association with the activity you're doing to drag them into sin. So maybe it's a past of living a debaucherous lifestyle and drinking and partying and all of that. And all of a sudden, your awareness, this knowledge that you can consume alcohol is causing them to go right back to that place over and over and over again. And it's dragging them back into the lifestyle that they can't avoid. For the Corinthians, it was this idea of this pagan idolatry and this worship of false gods, this sort of sexually uh, explicit activity that would have taken place at the temples. And he says, when you go to the temples and you eat that meat and they see you, there's a tendency to be pulled right back there. That's where their heads go. That's where their hearts go because that is their past. And he says, as a result, their conscience is wounded, right? And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Speaks to the ignorance, the past experience, and the conscience of this weaker brother. But if we don't know that, how can we care about that? Now, he's not advocating that these weaker brothers run around the church and dictate to everyone how they operate. There is a type of person that wants to tell everyone how to operate within the church and claim to be a weaker brother. But if you ask them, so are you saying you're a weaker brother in this? Typically, the answer isn't yes. What this is, is this is a history, this is an ignorance that is causing this person to struggle with sin in this area. And Paul is advocating love rather than berating knowledge. He's asking them to bear with them. Though he's making the point that food isn't really the point. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The truth of the matter is, food isn't really the point. What you're arguing about isn't really the point. He says both groups were making too big of a deal out of food. The weak brother, by his ignorance, and the free brother, by his indifference. As a result, they were both making too big of a deal out of the issue. And Paul lays out the indifference of the strong. Look at verse 9. He says this, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says, you have the right to do this. You have the right to participate in these meals, to eat this meat. 
but take care. Be cautious the way you exercise your right. Be careful what you step into and who you step on in exercising that right. He says, you have this right. It is a right of yours, but be careful that it doesn't become a stumbling block, that it doesn't tear down a brother or sister in Christ, that you exercising the freedom that you absolutely have in Christ doesn't destroy your brother or sister. Valuing our rights, our freedoms, or our preferences over the spiritual health of other believers is wrong. I want to say this as unequivocally as I can. Valuing our rights, our freedoms, or our preferences over the spiritual health of other believers is wrong. Because look at the result of it. Look at verse 10 and 11. We see the destruction of the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. He offers up this practical example. He says, they will observe you eating. Probably what he has in mind is these public gatherings that we talked about, these meals that were shared in a temple, in a public place where they could see it. We're probably not talking about eating privately in our homes. That's not the point. But as a result of them observing you doing it, won't they feel pressured to do it as well? Won't they feel pressured that like, I should be able to do that too. But then they go and try and do it and it brings up all of that baggage and they find themselves in a sinful lifestyle again because they get drugged right back into the sort of thing that they were doing before they came to Christ. It says, will they not be encouraged to eat this food that's offered to idols? This is precisely what Paul has in mind, I believe, in Romans 14, verses 23, when he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So he's saying your exercise of your right, your freedom, which you have every right to do, drags your brother or sister into sin. And by so doing, you destroy them. Think about the significance of what Paul is saying here. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul had plenty of knowledge. But he says, we, through our indifference, can destroy our brothers and sisters in Christ by engaging in activities that by all rights we have every right to do. But if our brother or sister is destroyed, is it really worth it? And I love the way he reinforces this. The brother for whom Christ died. It says, Christ bled on the cross to redeem this brother or sister whom you are being totally indifferent to. What does that say about what you think of Christ's sacrifice? This is a brother that Christ died for. How can you be indifferent? The way we approach conscience issues can either build up or destroy our brothers and sisters in Christ. The way we approach these issues 
So Paul calls this unloving. This indifferent behavior he calls precisely what it is, sin. Look at verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It says this sort of loveless indifference is a sin. You have sinned against your brother by not caring. And as a result, you've wounded their conscience and you've sinned against Christ. Think about that. Paul is going to talk about the, the church as the body of Christ, the head being Christ, later in 1 Corinthians. He says you're wounding the body, you're sinning against Christ himself. This sort of self-serving behavior is a sin against our brothers and it's a sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul offers another way. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I would really struggle with that. I'm not a vegan. <laughs> this would be a huge sacrifice for me. But he says, if it makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If it means that much to them, if it means risking their spiritual health, I'll go without meat entirely. He offers this commitment of love. To commit to loving that brother or sister more than our own personal preferences. Which brings us to the point of the matter. Knowledge without love is destructive. Brotherly love always supersedes Christian rights and freedoms. Because knowledge without love is destructive. Now note, he's not saying that love without knowledge is the answer. Love without knowledge is a whole other issue. It's sentimentality. It does no one any good. But he says, knowledge without love is destructive. I don't know how long it's been for most of you since you've taken high school chemistry. This makes me think of sodium. Do you know anything about the chemical element sodium? One of the things that's interesting to note is sodium chloride, when sodium is combined with chlorine, it makes salt. Right? Pretty innocuous pretty undamaging. Sodium by itself, when contacted with water, will explode. And yet, when you combine it with chlorine, you get table salt. Paul's making the same point here. He's saying, knowledge without love is explosive. But if you exercise your knowledge through love, it builds up your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's valuable. It's edifying. It's encouraging. What does this mean for us? Practically, we must distinguish our personal preferences from our weak consciences. Every one of us is in some way the weaker brother. Each of us have struggles that no one else might know. And there are things that are genuinely weak conscience that will lead you into sin if you engage in that sort of freedom and activity. But that is a far cry from a personal preference. Those two things are not the same thing. And we must not put them on an equal playing field and run around telling everybody that our conscience should dictate what everyone else does. On the other hand, if we're guilty of this sort of loveless indifference, the path forward is pretty clear. We repent, we apologize, and we forgive. The fact of the matter is, 
The church has been guilty of this over the last couple of years. We have hurt each other. We have offended each other. We have cut off relationships. We have quit speaking to people because of these sort of issues. And Paul says the path forward is to repent, apologize, and forgive. It's a sin. Call a spade a spade. It doesn't mean there isn't a path forward. It doesn't mean there isn't repentance and redemption in Christ. But call a spade a spade. Because as a church, we cannot exist without most of the people submitting their preferences to leaders and each other most of the time. That's how any sort of community works. That sort of any sort of relationship requires self-sacrifice, does it not? In order to maintain a relationship with another individual, we must lay down our preferences at times. You don't have a friendship that you haven't chosen to lay down your preferences at times for, Right? When you're trying to decide who is going to pick where you go out to eat and you're trying to figure it out with a friend and he wants to eat at Chipotle and you want to eat at Pizza Hut. And you go, okay, we can go where you want to go. You're sacrificing your own preference for the sake of the relationship. We do it all the time, hopefully in our families. I sacrifice my preference for eight hours of sleep every night for the sake of my four children. We sacrifice our preferences in our marriages, or we should when we lay down what we want for the sake of the other person. We sacrifice our preferences in the church for the good of the community we're a part of. It's part of what it takes to exist. Because this is what makes the church fundamentally countercultural, isn't it? The culture that is so infatuated with tribalism and tells us that every personal preference we have should be encouraged by our news feed on our social media account. And if anyone steps out of line with that, we should probably jettison them as a toxic relationship. Into that sphere, the church steps and says, because of our identity in Christ, we can have unity with people that we don't agree with on a whole bunch of other issues. Because the issue of of divisions in our culture is not because of knowledge, it's because of love, right? There are brilliant people in our world that are incapable of talking to each other. Why? Because they don't have enough knowledge? Because they don't care about each other. Because there's no love. It's not for a matter of love, and, or it's not a matter of knowledge, it's not a matter of head intellect, it's a matter of love. This is what makes the church countercultural. This is what makes the church stand out. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I would encourage you, resolve today to always love your brothers and sisters more than your own preferences, rights, and convictions. It doesn't matter, or it doesn't mean those things do not matter. It doesn't mean we should ignore those things and not talk about them but we must give preference to our brothers and sisters in Christ over our own preferences, our own rights, and even our own convictions. Here's the key point. Here's what I think Paul is driving at in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Salvation through Christ gives us the right to live wisely and to love sacrificially. We are freed from our idolatry of self-service and living for every whim and opinion and preference that we have and to live for other people. It moves us from internally focused to externally focused. It gives us the right 
to live wisely, and to love sacrificially. That's what Christ's death on the cross earned for us. He loved us first. Can we do any better? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds through this. It is so easy to jettison love for knowledge. It is so easy to forget our brothers and sisters in Christ and be indifferent to their struggles and their pains and their challenges and their hearts. Lord, help us to be a church that doesn't destroy each other for our pursuit of knowledge. Help us to be a church that marries love and knowledge so that we can exalt you and glorify you and so that we can love each other sacrificially. Conform us to the image of Christ. Christ who modeled this perfectly for us, who was full of grace and truth. Help us to become like him. For your glory, in his name. Amen.